Hello, friends, and welcome to the Capital City Christian Church podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm so glad that you're tuning in with us. If this is your first time listening or you just like to reach out, feel free to shoot an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. Have you ever been in a storm? Not a metaphorical storm, but a scary hide-in-the-basement, sirens-blaring storm? Well, a guy named Mark tells us a story about a time when Jesus and his friends were in the middle of a storm on a boat. But what happened and how Jesus responded was amazing. Here's our second message in a series about Jesus's unmatched power, his power over nature. Hey guys, December 1978. This was all underwater. Everything that you can see around me was underwater. The flood that struck Frankfurt that year was the biggest that Frankfurt had ever seen. More than half of downtown Frankfurt was flooded. About a thousand people had to flee their homes. There were a whole lot of people praying, but the water just kept on coming. My kids actually lived upstream here on this river in May 2010. Their house was safe as long as the water didn't exceed 39 feet. Well, it got to nearly 43. We madly cleared their downstairs. We went to some of the neighbors, helped them clear theirs, and then we just watched powerlessly as the water just kept rising four feet right into their house. It is powerless. You know it's coming. You watch the projections. There's just nothing you can do to stop it. 2004, there was an earthquake in the Indian Ocean. The subsequent tsunami killed over 167,000 people. Amazing. Smaller one just this past year. January 2010, some of our church family were in Haiti wasn't a tsunami, just this immense earthquake. And I'm telling you guys, if you've been in an earthquake, it can send chills down your spine. The death toll was in the hundreds of thousands, 250,000 homes, 30,000 businesses collapsed or were severely damaged. Nature is just incredibly powerful. I love a storm. I love the wind, the lightning, but, but sometimes it's more than just stunning and awe-inspiring. Sometimes it is absolutely terrifying. Well. How would you react to somebody who could just snap his finger and a tornado stills, a hurricane stills, an earthquake quiets, a tsunami just calms? Someone who is infinitely more powerful and in some ways infinitely more frightening than nature. Good morning. I hope, it's going to be weird, but I hope that this morning you're going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. I hope when you come here to Capital City, you feel a little bit uncomfortable a lot for this reason. If the presence of the real Jesus doesn't make you uncomfortable sometimes, you're probably not experiencing the real Jesus. And that's what we're here for. See, an essential part of doing life with God is fear. A good kind of fear in the best senses of that word. If you don't fear God, if you don't fear Jesus, you probably don't really know him. Now, have you ever been around somebody who's really, really famous or really, really powerful? Or maybe you're just around somebody that you idolized, make you nervous, make you a little bit tongue-tied, knock-kneed. Maybe you said something a little stupid or a little did something a little crazy. Maybe afterwards you're thinking, boy, I was stupid. I just wish I hadn't said that, done that. Why didn't I say this, do that? And if human greatness can do that to us, what do you suppose it would actually feel like if you recognize that you were in the very, very presence, face to face, nose to nose with God? 
We're going to look at one of the most famous of Jesus' miracles. We're going to drill down one of the pieces of this miracle that a lot of people miss because it reveals an essential part of life with God that most people do kind of miss. The fear of God in a healthy way. See, way too often we kind of think of Jesus as meek and mild, right? Very gentle man, the kind of guy who'd toss your kids in the air, pet a couple of lambs, maybe cry at the latest chick flick, and wince when you let a couple of choice words slip. Sits quietly looking pensively at sunsets, his permed hair just blowing gently in the breeze. Jesus. (laughs) And his tenderness can be mind-blowing. Do you know why? Because he's so daggone scary. It is not so impressive when a very, very weak man is gentle. When a fierce, powerful man is gentle, that can blow your mind. Now, I know that a lot of people today kind of would see a fierce God as a corrupt God by some kind of a toxic masculinity. A God who would be feared would almost be disdained as having some kind of a fault. Leftover relic from an archaic, oppressive, repressive, unenlightened religion that is better outgrown. How sad. If you've ever been tongue-tied and knock-kneed in the presence of some musician, some actor, some sports idol, some other mover and shaker, maybe even some girl or some guy, why do we think it twisted to be tongue-tied and knock-kneed, to be starstruck in the presence of the one who spoke the universe into existence with a word? A couple nights ago when I got home, my daughter was standing out on our driveway, just looking up at the sky. She was just standing there looking up. And I looked up and I saw why. It was absolutely incredible. You ever seen a sky like that? It was dark. It was absolutely clear. And the stars were dazzling bright. Beautiful. Believe it or not, they tell us that on the clearest night, without light pollution, there are only about 9,096 stars that you can actually see with the naked eye. That's what they tell us. It looks like there are gazillions of them. And since we can only see about half the sky, because the earth is round, right? On the darkest, clearest night, we can only see about 4,548 stars, believe it or not. Out of about 3,000 billion trillion stars, we see a couple of thousand of them. (laughs) And Isaiah the prophet tells us that he knows each of them by name. Which blows my mind because I can't even remember the names of my staff, <laughs> much less your names. I actually had a guy come up here one time to join the church. It was so funny. He handed me a slip of paper with the names of his family on it because he knew that in the two minutes between the time they introduced themselves and the time I had to introduce them, I'd forget, right? I do that. Smart guy. 3,000 billion trillion stars. And every single one of those stars putting out about the same amount of energy as a 500,000 megaton bomb every single second. And God spoke them into existence with a word. Seriously? And if you actually get that, and if you actually buy that, and you're telling me that you wouldn't get a little bit knock-kneed and a little bit tongue-tied in his presence... Do you think he's here right now in this room with us in a special kind of way? 
Mark chapter 4, starting with verse 35. Here's the story we're going to look at. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in a boat and they started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed, it says. So Jesus and his guys are next to a lake. That happens to be the Sea of Galilee. It's a good-sized lake, about 13 miles long, about 8 miles wide, about 140 feet deep. Pretty good-sized lake. They could have walked around it. It would have taken a while, but Jesus wanted to go by boat. Either he was really, really tired and wanted to sleep, or else he had a plan, right? A couple of little details that are very interesting. You see, Mark tells us that other boats followed that's an entirely unnecessary little detail. They just disappear from the story after this. A couple of verses later, Mark's going to tell us that Jesus brought a cushion with him and that he was asleep in the back of the boat. Other unnecessary details that he's not going to get back to. Now listen, there are people today who think these Jesus stories are more myth and legend than they are history, right? Right? They're going to tell you that there may be seeds of historical truth in these stories, but that they kind of evolved, making Jesus way more powerful and grand as he really was as time went on. At first, they're going to tell you that maybe the disciples saw Jesus as just a great teacher, a great rabbi. Maybe even a guy who saw, said some great things. Maybe he did some pretty special things. But as the stories got passed on, kind of like in the telephone game, Jesus just got bigger and bigger till he was doing the, all these miracles and he was actually calling himself God. That's what they're going to tell you. So Jesus would pray for somebody to get well and eventually that person did get well. Pretty soon, Jesus has got to be a healer, right? Or Jesus prayed for relief from a storm, and eventually the storm calmed down, so Jesus must be able to control the weather, right? Or the original followers saw Jesus as kind of a voice of God. He spoke for God, and eventually, as the stories were passed down, he became the son of God in our myths, in our stories. You know why this kind of thinking became kind of popular? Because the guys who studied this stuff, the guys who didn't want to buy it, they knew that the idea that the disciples just made all this stuff up wouldn't fly, wouldn't work. It's ludicrous. They couldn't have just invented these stories. Why would they do that? What would their motives be? If they were trying to make some money, it didn't work. They started poor, they stayed poor. If power was their motive, that didn't work. Their testimony to Jesus brought them nothing but pain. They were all hounded, persecuted. Most of them were murdered for their faith in Jesus and not a single one of them backed down. So the idea that the original disciples were just lying, they're just making this stuff up, they knew it wouldn't fly. So maybe the stories just got exaggerated over time. By the time they were written down, what we have, maybe the legend is just indistinguishable from the facts, right? Problem is, Gospels don't read like ancient legends. We've got lots of them. They don't read like them. They don't sound like any of the legends of that time. Gospels claim to be by eyewitnesses, and they read like it. Little details like these. There are other boats around. Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the back of the boat. They don't add anything to the story, except they're the kind of little details that an eyewitness would add to the story. Things you remember about something that's stuck in your mind. The ancient legends don't have details like these. The gospel stories of Jesus are full of them. So, 
What if? What if it really happened just the way Mark says it did? Don't soften it in your mind in any way. What if it really happened? How would you respond if you were there? Verse 37, Mark says, Soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat. It began to fill up with water. Jesus was still asleep in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. Disciples woke him up and they were shouting at him, Teacher, don't you care that we're about to drown? Guys, it had to be a heck of a storm. Several of the disciples were commercial fishermen. We looked at that last week. They had a, they'd been on boats in many a storm on this Sea of Galilee. These were not Cub Scouts in a canoe. Sea of Galilee can host some incredible storms. Believe it or not, the surface of the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. Pretty amazing, huh? Mountains nearby that rise to 9,200 feet above sea level, nearly 10,000 feet higher. I mean, the highest mountain in the state of Kentucky is only half of that. About 50 miles away, you've got the Mediterranean Sea. So cold air coming down from the mountains, crashing into the warm air from the lake and from the sea, they stir up these incredible storms on this lake. So actually some of the restaurants today that are along that lake are on stilts and they've got signs telling you to guard your cars because if a storm comes, the water can rise as much as 10 feet almost instantly. It's amazing. Jesus is in the boat, sleeping on a cushion, and I'm telling you guys, if you've ever tried it, sleeping on a boat can be quite relaxing, can't it? It can be quite nice. But if the waves are high enough to nearly swamp the boat, the rain is thrashing you, the wind is whipping, and he's not down in some cabin the way that we might be sleeping on a boat, how tired would you have to be to sleep through all of that? What kind of, which kind of gives you a sense of how human Jesus was too. And Mark says Jesus brought a pillow. He brought a pillow, which means one of two things. Either he was that tired and he desperately needed the sleep and he wanted to get some sleep on this trip, or else, have you ever seen a person carry one of those neck pillows onto a plane? You know what they've got in mind, right? Every time I see one of you guys bring one of those neck pillows into this room, I know exactly what you got in mind, all right? So Jesus, maybe he just needs to sleep, or maybe... He intends to sleep because this whole thing is a setup. He is the Son of God. He probably had a sense the storm is coming. He probably had a sense that things were going to get really, really rough, and he wanted to be asleep when they got desperate. Maybe. Anyway, the disciples wake Jesus up, and they shouted him one of the dumbest questions we ever throw at God. And we throw this question at God a lot. Don't you care? Don't you care that we're going to drown? What's wrong with you, Jesus? Don't you care? You blind? Are you heartless? Now, maybe they had more excuse than we do when we shout that question at Jesus. The very same question. You have accused God of that many times, haven't you? Don't you care, Jesus? Don't you care, God? Whenever you feel overwhelmed, whenever you feel crushed, scared, whenever you're praying and you don't feel like God is answering... My mom is dying. Jesus, don't you care? My marriage is falling apart. Jesus, don't you care? My kids are being bullied and I keep asking you to intervene. Don't you care? 
We're out of money, God, and we're about to lose the house. I'm praying for my kid, and he keeps drifting away from God. Don't you care? Have you ever felt like God is sleeping on the job? Or worse, that maybe he isn't there at all, and you're just speaking into emptiness? Or if he is there, maybe God is not so powerful. Or maybe God is not so good. I'll bet those thoughts have crossed your mind once or twice or a few hundred times. Verse 39. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Shh. And suddenly the wind stops and there's a great calm. And he asks the disciples, he asks this question, Why are you afraid? You still have no faith? Really? Now, do you think it really happened this way? Do you think it really happened this way? And if it actually did, and you were there, if you were one of them, what would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? So Jesus kind of gets up from his sleep and he stretches and he looks around and then without any incantations, no invectives, no chants, he doesn't pull out a magic wand, he doesn't pray to God for help. He just says, Shh. And like a parent rebuking an honorary kid, <laughs> stop it. Don't you dare disrespect your mother. Knock it off, boy. Use the toilet, not the sink. <laughs> scolds the child like a parent scolds an honorary child. And it obeys. What if it really did? NLT says there was a great calm. The NIV says it was completely calm. The message says the sea became as smooth as glass. Have you ever been near the water right after a storm? Stays choppy for a while, doesn't it? Well, what if it really happened just the way Mark says it did? Dead calm, smooth as glass. I still remember the stillest water that I have ever seen. Sticks in my mind 50 years later. Lake Tahoe, border between California and Nevada. Big lake, 22 miles long, 12 miles wide, 1,600 feet deep. Wasn't after a storm. I was a kid. We were water skiing, actually. We went out early in the morning, and this water was like glass. It was eerily, eerily still. I could still see it. It's amazing, by the way, if you've ever skied on glass, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty cool. But here's, there's this storm, and the board is, boat is ready to flip, and Jesus says, stop it. And the water is like glass. Would it blow your mind? Would it make you just a little bit tongue-tied and knock-kneed? And then Jesus says, why are you afraid? Do you have so little faith? Do you have so little trust in me? So little understanding in me? You dorks? I threw in the dorks part, but I'm pretty sure he was thinking it. As if the likelihood of drowning in a raging sea wasn't a good enough excuse for wetting their pants. And here's where the story gets interesting. This is where it gets cool. Mark says, then, then, the disciples were absolutely terrified. <laughs> Who is this man, they asked each other, that even the wind and the waves obey him? In other words, being about to drown in a storm 
ranked at about a nine on the terror scale. Being in the presence of the one who could tell that storm to shut up, and it did, blew the top off that terror scale. Storm can be incredibly powerful. How much power does it take to be able to tell a storm to shut up and it whimpers like a child? Who is this guy? Who is this guy who can order storms around like a parent talks to a toddler? He scared them way more than the storm did. The message says they were in absolute awe. They were staggered. No kidding. Wouldn't you be? You see, the Jews in that day believed that no man, no man could control the weather except God. And they were right. There's a story of a Danish king. You've probably heard this king. In the 11th century, a guy named King Canute. Ever heard that story? Great name. His lackeys kept on brown-nosing him, heaping on him these excessive praises, calling him God. So he asked them, am I divine? Am I God? So he took his lackeys down to the seashore and he stood there and he ordered the waves to stop. And they didn't, of course. And what he was telling his people was this, only God can command the waves to hush. And I'm not God. And look at the way Jesus did it. He didn't use any formulas, no incantations, no magic tricks, no magic wands. He doesn't beg God for a miracle. He tells the storm to stop, and it does immediately. And if it really happened that way, <laughs> you'd do exactly what they did. Who is this guy? Who is he? You see, some people question whether a miracle like this is believable. Could it really have happened? I've never said anything like it of you. It's the wrong question. It is the very wrong question. It is not about whether Jesus controlled the weather. It's about whether he really is the Son of God. If Jesus really is the Son of God, if he really is God, guys... For a guy who could speak 3,000 billion trillion stars into existence with a word, stilling an infinitesimal little storm with a word would be child's play. If he's God, of course he could do this. You see, for guys like us, it's not about having great faith. It's about having faith in the right guy. The amount of faith you've got is irrelevant. If you have faith in the wrong thing, Jesus is the right guy. Who do, you, who do you really think he is? Who do you really think he is right now? I mean, last week, if it happened exactly the way that Mark tells us it did, Jesus talks to a paralyzed guy. He tells him to get up and walk, and Jesus demonstrates this irresistible power over disease. This week, Jesus tells the storm to hush up, and it does. He displays this irresistible power over nature. Next week, we're going to show Jesus having this irresistible power over demons. In two weeks, we're going to look at his irresistible power over death itself. Who is this guy? That's the question you've got to answer. Last week, I said you've got three options. He's either a raving lunatic, right? He's either a maniacal liar, or he is the Lord. And guys, if disease bends its knees to Jesus, and if nature bends its knees to Jesus, and if demons bend their knees to Jesus, and if death bends 
its knees to Jesus. Why won't we? Why don't we? I want to kind of step back from the story and just think for a couple of minutes about some things that we need to take from the story. There are more than these, but I'm just going to suggest four very quickly. Thing one, there is a good kind of fear. There's a good kind of fear. There's some who would tell you that you don't have to fear a good God. That a God who would have to be feared must be terrible. Probably a leftover relic from an archaic, oppressive, unenlightened religion that it would be better for you to outgrow. Did you know there's a technical word for that kind of thinking? It's called poppycock. It's absurd. If we get tongue-tied and knock-kneed around twits who are human, how could you see something like what Jesus did? How could you come into presence with a real God without some kind of sense of holy terror? It's a great scene in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, written by a guy named John, who was one of the inner three, one of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. Considered himself Jesus' BFF, right? He called himself the one Jesus loved. Pretty remarkable. During the Last Supper, he was the one who laid his head back on Jesus' chest. Well, he's got this vision of his best friend in Revelation 1. Jesus' head and his hair were as white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze. His voice thundered like crashing waves. His face was kind of like the sun in all of its brilliance. And when John saw his friend Jesus, when he saw his friend Jesus without disguise, do you think he ran up to him and said, long time no see, bro? It says he fell at his feet as if he were dead. No kidding. I wish we could get a little of that back. That we could replace Jesus our homeboy, Jesus our pal. You know, Jesus meek and mild, the gentle Jesus, the Jesus who always loves, never harsh, never rude. We sing all of these silly sentimental songs about wanting to be in his presence. And I suspect that his presence is going to make us tongue-tied and knock-kneed. Maybe even wanting to fall at his feet as though dead. I'm telling you guys, if Jesus showed up here at Capital City once or twice, he'd be terrible for our attendance. Maybe the reason we yawn at Jesus, and we do, we marginalize him, is that stupidly we no longer fear him. Jesus rebuked the weather, and it submitted He rebuked disease, and disease obeyed him. He rebuked death itself, yielded. He rebuked demons, and they cowered. Who are we to yawn at him? Maybe in our worship, we ought to feel a little less sentimental sweetness and a little more trembling at the presence of God. Maybe in our daily living, we need a little less disrespect and a little more Yes, sir. Sometimes we treat his commands so casually. Really? Man, I know what Jesus wants me to do, but not yet. Really? I know he'd rather I'd not do this thing, but I'm going to have to do it my way for now. Really? Do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who you're pushing back on? 
Thing one, there's a good kind of fear, a wise kind of fear. Thing, thing two, fear does not exclude love. Fear does not exclude love. There are some who would tell you that you needn't fear a good God. There are those who would point to the verse in the Bible that tells you that perfect love casts out fear and tell you that a man needn't fear God. Well, there's a technical word for that. You know what it is? It's poppycock. In fact, it's stories like the stilling of the storm that make the gentleness of Jesus dazzling. You see, the gentlest men are not those who are the weakest. If you're weak, <laughs> your gentleness doesn't mean much. Real gentleness is power restrained. Real gentleness is a warrior cradling a child. At least that's the kind of gentleness that blows our mind. C.S. Lewis is one of my heroes. You guys know that. His Chronicles of Narnia are absolutely amazing. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the kids hear that Aslan, the lion, the king, the Jesus figure is coming back to Narnia. So Susan says, so wait, who is this Aslan? Mr. Beaver says, why, why he's the king. He's the great lion who is the creator of Narnia itself and he is its rightful ruler. And Susan says, a lion, a lion. I thought he was a man. Is he safe? <laughs> I'll feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, as she should. Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who says anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. <laughs> of course Jesus isn't safe. He's the king. He's our king. But he is good. He proved his goodness on a cross. He proved his love on a cross. Listen, guys. Life with God is this strange, strange blend of intimacy and awe. We stand in awe of his size and his power and his holiness. And then there's this mind-blowing intimacy with that God. When we get this inkling of how much he loves us and what he's done for us. And the weird, weird, weird truth that he actually does want to do life with us. One without the other. Intimacy without awe, awe without intimacy is twisted. Some of you guys, some of us actually, this is where I have lived. We have a healthy fear of God but not nearly enough sense of his intimacy. I've spent most of my life deformed that way. Others of you are so obsessed with his love, which is cool, that you've lost a sense of awe, which sometimes leads you to lackadaisical worship. You just sit there and blow it off. Casual obedience or even disobedience and doing life marginalizing the creator himself, which is lunacy. It takes both intimacy and awe. Thing one, there's a good kind of fear. Thing two, fear does not exclude love. Thing three, God will not keep you out of all the storms. He's not going to. Sometimes we get the craziest ideas. If Jesus really loved me, if he really loved me, he wouldn't let this happen to me. If he actually had all this power, he wouldn't let this happen to me. If Jesus really loved me, he wouldn't have let me fall off that scaffold, right? Jesus really loved me. He wouldn't have let my mom die so soon and so painfully. Jesus really loved me. He wouldn't let our kids drift. He wouldn't let my wife suffer that miscarriage. He wouldn't let us lose the house. He wouldn't let us, you fill in the blank. 
Sometimes, guys, when the waves are overwhelming, we think Jesus is sleeping or that he's impotent or that maybe he just is not good. And we forget that there are things way more important than avoiding the storms. In fact, there are some things that we can only learn inside the storms. His power, his faithfulness, his wisdom, trusting him no matter what because it's not time yet for him to step in and correct everything that is wrong. Storms are little. He's big. Storms are little and eternity is infinitely long. It's a good kind of love. Fear does not exclude love. God will not keep us out of all the storms. But number four, you can trust him. You can trust him in the storms. No fear. At least don't fear the storm nearly as much as you fear him. I know that fearing lesser things is one of God's gifts. Fear sometimes keeps us from being too stupid. But when we let fear of lesser things take control of us instead of the fear of God, everything gets twisted. See, guys, courage doesn't mean no fear. Courage means you're going to do the right thing even when you're afraid. It means that you fear God more than you fear anything else. Jesus rebukes the winds. And they hushed like glass immediately. Then he turns and he rebukes his disciples. He rebukes us. Why are you afraid? Why do you still have no faith, you dorks? That threw that part in, but I think he was thinking it. Because they were doing something we're not supposed to do. They were allowing their fear to overwhelm them. They were forgetting who he really is, the one we serve. It's kind of amusing that everybody wants a miracle, but no one wants to need one, right? <laughs> Think about that. If you need a miracle, you probably got a mess. But Jesus says, I'm going to be with you always. He says, I'm going to be with you always. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to do life with you. I'm going to be there with you always, even in the storms. And occasionally, he'll show off his power by delivering you from the storm. More often than not, till he comes back, he'll steady you if you let him. Sometimes he'll say to your storms, be still. Sometimes he'll say to you, be still and trust me. And he'll give you a strength that'll blow you away. I want that kind of strength, don't you? Who is he, guys? Who do you think he is? He called himself the Son of God. Mark calls him the Son of God. Some of us call him the Son of God. You buy that? This is the guy who would command a storm and it would shut up. He would command disease and it would obey him. He would command demons and they would cower. He would command death and it would relinquish whomever it had. They obeyed him. Why don't we? Some of you guys have never taken that first step of making Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. It starts there. Bend your knees to him. That's where life starts. He deserves that. Some of us have called Jesus our Lord, but we still marginalize him. We still go through life as if he doesn't really exist or he's not all that important to us. There's some confessing. There's some repenting that we need to do.
Let's reawaken that fear of God inside of us. Let's put our eyes on who he really is and what he really does. Just a moment, I'm going to pray during that time of prayer. I'm just going to ask us to get right with God. Right after that, we're going to sing a song. And during that song, if you want to come up, I'm going to be sitting down here. If you want to talk about making Jesus the Lord of your life or relinquishing something that is controlling you, be glad to do that. We've got other staff around that we can do that with. And then Steve's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper. Will we really see how much he loves us? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we're so grateful. So grateful for Jesus, so grateful for his power. And sometimes we are so sorry. We know who he is and what he has done and how big he is and the future that he has in store, and yet we still blow him off. For that, we ask your forgiveness. If there are those in this room, Lord, that need to get right with you, we pray that you'll give them the courage, the steadiness to do that right now. If there are those who need to start a life with you, we pray that they'll do that right now. We love you dearly. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.